G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au Salvation by knowledge, that's what I used to believe. So the more you know about the Bible, the closest you must be to God. You know, I'd hear some great messages about Jesus and salvation and the cross. But And every time I would hear about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, tears would start rolling down my cheeks. And I found that very, very annoying because I couldn't understand it. And that was like God through his spirit trying to reach into my heart and say, you know, this is where the power is. Welcome to Real Faith, conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through, helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's Real People, Real Life and Real Faith with Eric Scadabo. Eliezer Gonzalez was born in Switzerland in 1965 of Spanish parents who had fled there to avoid an oppressive fascist dictatorship in their home country. Eventually, Eliezer's family moved to Australia, where they began to attend a legalistic church. And he says his life was essentially a series of do's and don'ts without much grace. The irony is that now he leads a ministry that emphasizes sharing the good news of God's grace throughout the world. We'll find out how this transformation occurred in his life as Eliezer shares his story with us today. Eliezer Gonzalez, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to have you with us. And let's go back to not your start, but the start of your story really begins with your parents over in Spain. Tell us about what it was like under that oppressive dictatorship. Well, um, what happened is there was a civil war and the region that my parents lived in was on the wrong side of the winning side, if you mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. It was on the losing side. Mm-hmm. And uh, General Franco, who was the dictator who led the government, he systematically starved those parts of Spain that had opposed him. Mm. And so one of the earliest memories that my father had was of the mule-drawn carts that would rattle through the streets of the town. He lived in a small town every morning so that you could throw in your dead relatives who had just died of starvation because there was no food. Mm. So my parents witnessed uh, mass executions of family members just lined up against the uh, cemetery wall. They experienced uh, within the family, they saw wives betraying their husbands to, to the government and, and so on, and they would be executed. And So they grew up in a very, very difficult, harsh environment. Mm-hmm. How did they eventually get out? Well, my father managed to get out in 1955 to Switzerland. Before then, he'd only ever seen an orange once in his life on his birthday. Wow. That's, he'd never seen butter. Wow. He'd never seen milk before. Can you believe it? Yeah, all these things we just take for granted. Yeah. And they landed in Switzerland and it was like the promised land, but there was one problem, Eric. What was that? It was too cold. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little bit colder in Switzerland than in Spain. Yeah, well, I was born there and my brother also, and Mm -hmm. that's why when I was four and a half years old, the whole family moved to Australia. Oh, oh, to get to some nice warm weather. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But going back to your parents and the hard times that they went through in Spain, what impact did that have on them psychologically and and their worldview? 
Well, Eric, I don't think you can go through suffering like that without it profoundly changing you and it can change people in many different ways. In in my father's case, it really hardened him up and turned him into someone who was very, ultimately very fearful of the outside world mm, yeah. in all respects, but outwardly he gave uh, an impression of great confidence, someone who could become angry very easily, who desperately wanted to trust but found it very difficult. Uh, my mother, on the hand, was exactly the opposite. She became extremely codependent. She hardly had an opinion about mm. anything, really, and just depended on my, my father for, for everything. So my father and my mother both, uh, you know, the suffering affected them in, in very dramatically different ways. And then settling in Australia, you said that uh, your upbringing was harsh. Where were you in Australia and why was your upbringing harsh? Well, I was in Sydney, mm -hmm. and the reason why my upbringing harsh isn't that my father was physically abusive or abusive in that sort of way, but very emotionally abusive. Mm. And it was harsh, and I only recognize that now when I've got gray hair myself, right? You can't see these things when you're a kid. In fact, I thought until maybe 10 years ago, because I'm a slow learner, <laughs> that I had had the perfect family. This is just the reality of, of things. We, you know, understanding yourself is the hardest thing for most people, even though we don't recognize it. And so I, you know, I can't remember, for example, my father ever giving me a hug hmm. or praising me for anything at all, ever. So my family was certainly not a touchy-feely family, and I'm a touchy-feely kind of guy. Huh. You know, we've all got different love languages. Yeah, too. right. Yeah. And what I craved, as every little kid does, most of all, was my father's love, my father's mm -hmm. acceptance. Yeah. And I grew up feeling that nothing I did was ever good enough. Mm. Uh, I was no good at sport, no good at doing the sorts of things my father valued. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very good at, at school and, you know, academic stuff, and I could do music, and so I kind of excelled in those things. And I tried to get self-worth out from that, desperately hoping that that would be good enough, but I never got my father's approval. Hmm. And going back to your father and how the harsh experiences they had in Spain affected them, you said that their lives were kind of based on fear of the outside world and a corresponding need to control. How did that outwork itself in their lives? Well, I grew up in a very judgmental environment. For for example, we'd be walking down the road and I'd be holding onto my dad's hand. And I was I wouldn't have been more than seven years old. And, and I remember that uh, there'd be someone who was a little bit chubby, maybe a little bit overweight, who'd cross our path. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father would look down at me and, and say, see, Eliezer, that person has no self-control and they're going to pay for it. And that instilled in me uh, a very judgmental attitude that, that I've had for most of my life. I'm still struggling with it. I'm, I'm no longer judgmental of others, mm. but you know the hardest person it is to stop judging? Who's that? It's yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's always the way it is. And it also manifested itself in that, you know, we never saw the good in, in others. We also saw the bad side of others. Mm. And we also ended up in a church that sort of fit that mindset mm -hmm. where it was always them and us, the outsiders, mm. that's them, and we're us, you know, we're really special, and uh, we've got it made here, but the others don't. We sort of have to keep a very clear line between us and don't cross that line. And so we've got to do things in certain ways and live in certain ways and we'll be safe. 
So your view of being a Christian was following a bunch of do's and don'ts and being a perfectionist. Yeah. Well, it, it was. Of course, um, no Christian will ever admit to being a perfectionist, and I certainly wouldn't have admitted to that, but I was. I recognize that now, and I haven't understood that un, un, until the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, one of the things that everyone is good at in every part of life is justifying themselves mm-hmm. and rationalizing yep. Yep. You know, how they choose to live. And it's comfortable to think you're living in a way in which you're in control of your life. Mm-hmm. And it's even more comfortable to think that you're living in a way, if you're a Christian, that you're kind of at least a little bit in control of your salvation because of the way oh, you live. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. So that, right? that's why it would be attractive because you're in control. It was attractive. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's this whole idea of the them and us idea that I talked about. We're mm-hmm. special because we do these things that those people outside don't do and we don't do mm. the things that they do. And so I really grew up with that really drummed in into me. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, Christians are special. I know that. Mm-hmm. But we don't think we're special from a position of pride. Mm-hmm. We know that in and of ourselves have exactly the same need of grace mm-hmm. and, uh, Thereby the grace of God go I, you know, mm-hmm. that sort yeah. of thing. So we know that. Yeah. But that wasn't how I looked at it before. There was no humility in my in my understanding of Christianity. And it's so easy for us to be prideful, especially if we think our group is better than everybody else. Well, that's right. And it was natural for me to feel comfortable in, in a church setting that taught that there was only safety in following its rules mm-hmm. uh, because that's what I'd grown up with in my home setting as well. And also, you had a lot of biblical knowledge, so you must be spiritual because, hey, look, you know all these Bible verses. Oh, don't get me started, Eric. (laughs) I mean, salvation by knowledge, that's what I used to believe. So the more you know about the Bible, the closest you must be to God. You know, the, the two people whom Jesus Christ, the only two people whom Jesus Christ commended in the New Testament, in the stories of Jesus for their faith, neither of them were Jews and neither of them knew anything about the Bible. Uh, they were two Gentiles, two people who weren't of the Jewish race. Mm-hmm. And and so, but I used Can to Can you tell us that, those real quick? Yeah, sure. sure. One was a Roman centurion uh, who asked Jesus to heal his, his servant, and he was commended for his great faith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the centurion were hated by the Jews. They were the great oppressors because they were the Romans. They'd mm-hmm. taken over their country. And, and the other one was a, a woman who lived in the region of Tyre and Sidon where the Phoenicians had lived before and they were the great enemies of God's people historically of the Jews and, uh, you know, the Jews call them dogs, really. Mm-hmm. And she came and begged Jesus for healing and to cut a long story short, he healed her daughter, that was who needed healing, and, and said, look, I haven't found such great faith anywhere, not even in all of Israel. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a slap in yeah. the face for the true believers back then. <laughs> As the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So even yeah. though knowing lots of Bible verses is fantastic, but that's not really what's going to please God, just knowledge, head knowledge. I'll never downplay knowing the teachings of the Bible, mm-hmm. but I'll always put faith and a genuine trust in God, no matter how much or little you know above mm-hmm. that. Cause mm-hmm. A genuine faith, I mean, faith is the only thing that saves. It's your, it's your connection with God, nothing else. Our guest today is Eliezer Gonzalez, who's sharing his life journey and how he became trapped in legalistic thinking and believing that life was essentially a series of do's and don'ts without much grace. We'll hear more of Eliezer's story and how God was working in its life when we return right here on Real Faith. 
Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith. Conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and our guest today is Eliezer Gonzalez, who's sharing his life journey and how he became trapped in legalistic thinking and stifling rules and regulations. Now we're going to find out what happened next in his life as he continues to share his story. Well, it's funny because even back then, Eric, you know, I'd hear some great messages about Jesus and salvation and the cross. But And every time I would hear about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, tears would start rolling down my cheeks. Mm. And I found that very, very annoying. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I couldn't understand it. It was touching your heart. Well, that's it. See, there's more than head knowledge here, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was like God through his spirit trying to reach into my heart and say, you know, this is where the power is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where the the heart of everything is at Calvary. But I had covered up the cross with so many other teachings that I considered as important as other rules even. And I'd I'd hear wonderful sermons about the cross and then, you know, next time I'd hear other sermons that were more legalistic. And I was so confused about what the gospel is. Mm. And I was so desperate to live uh, because I was a perfectionist, I was so desperate to live the right kind of life so that I could meet the standard that God set for me so that I could feel accepted by God. You know, my whole journey of life has been a journey of, of struggle to be loved and accepted. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't get from my father, I then projected onto those around me and especially my wife and my family. I made it very difficult, you know, when I later on had my own family. Mm-hmm. And the irony is by focusing on not doing things, you know, the do's and don'ts, but mostly the don'ts, uh, not sinning becomes harder. Well, that's the thing. I remember when I was 14 and 15 and 16, who hasn't committed some sins when you were a 14, 15, 16, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I remember that I used to make a list every morning of the good deeds I was going to do. It was a checklist mm-hmm. and then a checklist of the sins I was going to avoid, right? And mm-hmm. it never worked out for me. I could kind of do the good things but I couldn't stop doing the bad things. And the more I focused on stopping doing the bad things, the more bad things I did. And I've discovered that that's a basic rule of life. Hmm. The more you focus on what you don't want in your life, the more it will be in your life. If hmm. you focus on anger, you'll become angry. If you focus on you know, your addictions, you'll become more addicted. You have to f- fill your mind with, with what is good, with what is positive. And as Christians, we believe that we fill our mind with Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and with his goodness and with his love and his mercy and, and that that drives the rest of the agenda of our lives. But I didn't get that back then. That the Lord will set you free from the bondage to sin by focusing on him. Yeah, yeah. And I'm free from the bondage of sin now. It doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. It doesn't mean I don't sin. But mm-hmm. I'm free from the bondage. I'm not in the place where I was there then, back then. Mm-hmm. I've discovered the secret. I'm at peace with God and with others, genuinely. I'm the happiest I've been in 50 years. Seriously, Eric. Fantastic. And we're going to find out what transformation occurred in your life that makes you so happy. 
But first, let's go back to when you were a small child. You always had a sense that God had a great purpose for your life. Tell us about that. Yeah, I did. You know, I think that was a God thing, but my parents really, I guess, drove me and had great expectations of me. They drove me to excel at everything. And I had, I grew up on the, the Bible stories of Moses and David and, and Paul and all these sort of great heroes of the Bible and, and, uh, and stories of missionaries and, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I was convinced that God had a really great purpose for my life and I didn't know what it was. And then when I hit my teenage years into even my late teenage years, I'd, I'd have a lot of people who'd come up to me because I had a lot of Bible knowledge. I guess I can say honestly far beyond my years Mm -hmm. because I believed in this salvation by knowledge thing. Mm -hmm. And so people could come up to me and say, look, I really believe that you should go to Bible college or seminary and and study for the ministry and become a pastor. Uh, And and I would always say, no, I believe that uh, God is real. And if he's real, he can tap me on the shoulder just as he, you know, tapped Peter on the shoulder on the fishing boat and told him to follow me. Mm-hmm. If he wants me in the ministry, he'll tell me so himself. Thank you. I really do appreciate it, but I'll wait for Jesus to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I was really convinced that Jesus would at some stage, mm-hmm. but it seemed he never did. But let's go back to when you were 14 years old, you had a significant encounter with God. Yeah, I mean, even though, you know, I was a perfectionist and a legalist, I always had faith in God in the sense that I knew that he was real and and that the Bible was true. There's a lot of people in society that used to go to church when they were kids and then stopped going to church. Mm -hmm. And when you go to church as a kid, you go because your mum and dad take you, right? Yep. And you believe the things they tell you because your mum and dad tell you that they're true. Mm -hmm. You know, if your mum and dad are Christians, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's what I used to do. But I didn't know it for myself. Mm. You know, that's a difference. And that's an important step, I think, that believers in in Christ, followers of Jesus, have to take. You have to know it for yourself. And so I remember when I was uh, about 14 years old, I was going to a Christian school and I went to a meeting. It was a week of prayer they had once a year at school where every day uh, they had uh, a preacher who came and spoke to the students Mm-hmm. And then we prayed together. And I went to one of those, and I was sitting there listening, and he was a, he was a godly old saint, this guy. And I remember he said, if you really want to know if God is real, then before you go to bed tonight, ask him to wake you up at, at a ridiculous hour hmm. and see what happens. Yeah. Right? Now, I know, it sounds strange, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who would do that? Yeah. It's like challenging God, isn't it? Yeah. But... I was really, I guess, desperate to know if God was real for myself. So I was 14, right? So you know how 14-year-olds sleep. Yeah, they love their sleep. Yeah, they love their sleep. And I remember that night, I thought, yep, I'm going to do this. And so I, I remember I wanted to do it properly, so I knelt beside my bed and I asked God to wake me at 2.13 a.m., what chance did I have of waking up naturally at 2.13 a.m.? Oh, probably very, very slim. Buckley's, impossible, <laughs> right? I mean, look, I'm a teenager. You can't tell your body to wake you up at a very specific hour like that. Yeah. You know, I've never woken up at 2.13 a.m. anyway. So then I, I remember, the last thing I remember is is that I, I just lay down and I went to sleep right away, as teenagers do. The next thing I remember it's as if I'm in a, one of those hospital beds where the back of the bed sort of goes up and down. It's almost as if a hand was on my back and just pushed me up 
Huh. Next thing I remember, I'm, I'm sitting bolt upright in bed and my head just immediately turned towards the, the clock on my bedside cabinet and I, I noticed the time, 2.13am. Oh, wow. And I heard God for the first time then and people say, how do you hear God? I guess you hear God however he wants you to hear him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was audible in my head, let me tell you. And God assured me that he loved me and that he had a plan for my life. And he said to me, never, ever, ever ask for a sign again because you've got enough mm. and I won't give you a sign again. <laughs> yeah. So at this point in your life, in your young teenage years, you know God loves you and has a plan for you, but yet you're a bit confused with this earning acceptance and approval from God. Would that be a fair way of summing up kind of your mindset at that point? Yeah. I kept relying on my doctrinal beliefs. Mm-hmm and my performance as a basis of my acceptance with God, you know, my obedience, if you like, my law-keeping. But there was always a a niggle in my mind that it wasn't enough. And the reality is that when you know that you're not enough, when you don't feel that you're good enough, then you're going to seek love in the wrong kind of places. Mm. And so even as as a young man, I fell into some terrible addictions hmm. that I've, I've struggled with for a very long time. And you think those addictions that you stumbled into were directly as a result of this kind of wrong thinking? Oh, I know so. I know so. Because I've only been able to have the victory over those when my thinking became right thinking. And when I learned to derive my identity not from the external things in my life and my performance and my achievements, which were never enough, Mm -hmm. but from the fact that I'm a child of God and I am loved, even if I never felt loved, Mm -hmm. I don't need anyone else's love, you know, even if I was unloved by everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. It's good to be loved. Yeah. But I have the eternal love of God and that's enough. Amen. So meanwhile, even though you had this message that God had a special plan for you, you went off into a different direction. You didn't go into ministry. You went into several different secular positions. Is that right? Well, that's right, because I wasn't going to go and I knew God had something for my life, and but I wasn't going to be a, a pastor unless God called me because I believed God was real, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean. So he doesn't tap you on the shoulder, then you're not going. Well, that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus is alive, the tomb's empty, he can tell me himself. Fair <laughs> enough, isn't it? I think the reality is that this was all in God's plan too. Because mm-hmm. I think that very often people view being a Christian pastor as, as a profession. It's not a profession, mm-hmm. it's a divine calling. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't been called by God, get out because you're going to do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of how I saw it back then. I, I guess I still, I still see it now. You're right. I, I went into all sorts of uh, normal professional jobs. You know, I went to uni. I studied teaching. I was a teacher for a bit there. And and then I, I did so many different jobs after that, you know, HR management, safety management, sales and marketing, professional writing. And then I ran international businesses because I had accumulated all these skills and qualifications in business and mm-hmm. management. And things were going pretty good for you. Yeah. Look, it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was okay. It was Decent money, uh, but in the back of my mind, it wasn't ultimately fulfilling for me. Mm -hmm. And then, ultimately, you came to a crash, both economically and 
spiritually and psychologically. I mean, your whole life crashed, I guess we could say. Well, it did. And we're going to stop you right there because we've run out of yep. time for this first conversation okay. with Eliezer Gonzalez. We're going to find out what happened to cause that crash in his life, both economically, psychologically, spiritually, all these things that, well, resulted in a big heartbreak. Would, would that be a fair way of summing that up, Eliezer? Pretty good, yep. Okay, so we invite you to join us again next time. We'll hear more of Eliezer sharing his life story, and we'll find out how he goes from having his heart broken to having his heart filled to overflowing as he is now involved in (laughs) full-time ministry. So we'll find out more of his story next time. Meanwhile, if you want to get a preview, you can go to his ministry's website, goodnewsunlimited.com. That's goodnewsunlimited.com. We'll have more of Eliezer Gonzalez's story next time. You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Real Faith is a production of Vision Christian Media. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.